Hi, I'm Chuck. Welcome back to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life. The Thread Bible Podcast is a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. And in Season 4, we have been studying the foundation, the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. This is a special episode of Thread. It's a a time here at the end of the study where I get to tie up some pieces that I want to add to our study, although they are not technically in line with the passages we've been studying, but I think they're really important. I am going to assume, if you're on this episode, that you've been along for the ride. This has been the most important study of my life for understanding the big story of the Bible, even to understand the gospel in a much clearer way. Now, if you haven't been with us, I really recommend that you go back to season four, episode one, and start there. Because if you just jump in at this point, I honestly, I don't know if you're going to know what to make of this lesson, because this one is going to sound a little bit strange to many people's ears. Important thing that we're doing here at the end of this this study of the first 12 chapters of our Bible is to try to bring it all together into a Christian cosmology. A cosmology will help you answer the question, what kind of world is this? You know, what is this world I live in? How does it work? What's the truth about it? Cause and effect. What's this world about? And that's a really huge, important question that all of us need to get an answer to. This episode is also going to wrestle with one of the biggest questions that people have been asking even in the ancient world, and that is, it's the question that plagued Job, it plagued the psalmists, and here are the questions. Questions like, why does our beautiful world have so much evil in it? I mean, why is there so much injustice in every single nation, despite our best efforts, despite, you know, you come up with democracy and you still get injustice. You come up with, you know, you do all kinds of things to try to make right, old things that were done wrong, and yet then it spins off wrong again. I mean, why is it that this is like trying to, you know, herd mercury or something? Why is there so much injustice? Why isn't there a clear system of karma, you know, where you, you do good, you get good. And as long as you'll do good, you just keep getting more good. You know, why is it that good people, as Billy Joel wrote, you know, only the good die young, that's oversimplification, but, you know, who gets persecuted? Well, it's the righteous who get persecuted. And who gets to persecute them? Well, it's the evil ones, and they have the power. So why do the evil ones always end up having the power and use their, you know, so they can use their muscle to crush the good? And why is it that country by country by country, generation after generation, I mean, through hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, we still struggle to create an equitable society where everything is just fair and good? You know, we've tried utopia over and over again. Humans have gone off and and made farms and whole states, you know, where they 
tried to create a beautiful free place that had justice and it was right, you know, and they can have very high aspirations, but in the end, it always gets wrecked. So that's the question. You're like, why is the universe, why, why does this world, maybe not the whole universe, but at least our world, why does our world's at least human behaviors, why do they always spin toward darkness? It's frustrating, and it's a, we want an answer to it. All right, so to get an answer to that, and, and that's what today's thread is going to wrestle with, is we're going to look at a passage in the Bible, a whole psalm, but and that's Psalms 82, so you can go ahead and grab your Bible and be going there. But before I get there, I want to go back and hit the high points again, and I know I've done this probably 20 times, but and I won't get, <laughs> I will try not to get sidetracked on any of it and get it all said again in a minute. But it's just important to watch the logic of it, okay? The Bible opens up with one character, God the Creator. He is, we learn His name, and His name is connected with the, with the idea of freedom. He is the free God. I will be whatever I will be. He has freedom. He has agency. He is able to choose what he wants to do and do it. And so one of the things he wants to do is create. It is within him to create, and so he does. And he creates not only a world and not only material objects, but he creates two societies, high societies, not just the animals. He creates animals, he creates the fishes, he creates everything. But he creates two societies of hires, and the first we could lump together and call angels, although that word means messenger, and they don't all do messaging. But they are not of this world. They are not made of the, of the soil of our planet. They are from some other thing and place. And just for simplification, I'm going to call them angels, but the Hebrew word is Elohim, it's the word for any supernatural, any living being that is not of this world. I'll just leave it with that. Elohim, it's also the word for God or gods, the gods of the nations, the creator God. It's just one catch-all term. The other free society are humans. They are made in his image, and earth is created as the homeland for the creator God, Yahweh. And it is created as a place of overlap of heaven and earth. And so you have now the, the dream of two societies functioning as one family in one homeland. And Yahweh himself is going to live here. And the Bible opens up with this, these beautiful stories of Yahweh walking with humans. And there's this, this paternal interaction with male and female humans that he has made. He announces that the humans will be his imagers. They will be his, uh, his reflection. They'll be the co-regent on this planet. And then the tragedy kicks in. We are co-regents, and Psalms 8 is kind of amazed that he would pick us and not the angelic sons. You know, what is man that you're mindful of him? We're a little lower than the angels. But you crowned us with glory and majesty, and you know, 
you turn this world over to humans. That's what Psalms 8 is all about. And so then the tragedy comes. One of the kings does not like humans and wants to get us killed. And so he's the first rebel. He's the Nakash, the serpent, the dragon. And the humans collude with him and they rebel against the creator father and the earth becomes filled with violence to the point that there are no more good people. There is one righteous person left on the whole planet. And before there are none, Yahweh rescues the one, puts him in a lifeboat and hits the global reset and wipes out all the humans in the world. And so now we find the world reset, and we have this this three chapters about that event. And and you know I always wonder you know, why so many chapters about that when other things don't get that much attention. And yeah, and then I saw it toward the end of that, the world is wiped out, all this death, and now we're trying to start over again and save the world that way. Save the world by killing all the bad people. Now that's every every. Uh, action movie in the world. You know, it's kill the bad people. That's the solution to the problem. That'll solve the problem of injustice in the world. If we could just kill all the bad people. So, okay, we'll try that solution. Bam, they're all gone. And Yahweh muses over this, and then he makes a decision. It's a breakthrough covenant. It only comes from him. No one can make him make this choice. And he says, even though, it's a huge passage, even though the human heart is bent on Ra, the destructive force, from birth, I am never again going to kill all the humans. I'm never again going to wipe out all the life on this planet. Another solution has to be found. Well, the story continues. Humans repopulate. Right away, we start doing evil again. And then you come to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is the great story of humans one world government, one world cooperation, all humans united, because that's how it has always been. But now we come under like one government and immediately it's a conspiracy against God, against the creator God. We rise up to face him. We rise up to battle and to push him away. We create Babel and the whole system of Babylon, which becomes a spiritual theme for the rest of the Bible. And we build this battle tower and we challenge the God who is the, our creator and our savior. Well, Yahweh comes down and he saves the earth the second time, this time not by killing everybody, but by dividing humans. And we have been hopelessly divided since that day. We're divided into people groups, and our people groups each have our languages, and not only languages, but culture and tradition. And so that's where we left off. In our last episode, we were in Deuteronomy 32, and this story of uh, Moses is an old man writing a poem, writing a song, and it tells the story of the earth being divided on that day according to, as we pointed out in the last episode, and our best and oldest manuscripts, the earth is divided according to the, quote, sons of Elohim, sons of God. The Septuagint says angels of God, but... The working theory that we come out of just the plain reading of that passage is that the, quote, 70 nations, which is like the perfect round number, are assigned to 70 Elohim princes, 
70 angelic leaders. And I guess we could assume their crew, the guys that they lead, the other angels that they lead. And you could say, oh, there's no Bible for that. Well, you, you got to go to Daniel 10 and Daniel 10, 20. You've got that story of Daniel is visited by an Elohim and there is an angel that comes to see him. And the angel talks about there being an evil prince of Persia, who is an angelic ruler, and an evil prince of Greece, and that they resist the ways of God, and they resist the loyal Elohim of God. And so you got that in Daniel. Well, I want to strengthen this, this concept because I really think it is, it is biblical, and it's in Scripture, and it actually explains a lot of things. And it helps us deal with this same question, and that's going to be in Psalms 82. And to help us, I'm going to, as we study Psalms 82, and please go get your Bibles if you didn't already, because you're going to need to go verse by verse here. We're going to make use of Robert Alter's excellent translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. He is one of the world's great Hebrew scholars, and if you're serious about studying the Bible, you need to buy his life's big magnum opus, three-volume, The Hebrew Bible. He is from the Center of Jewish Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and he has taught there for 50 years. And so he does an excellent job on this passage, and I, I find that even his commentary is really interesting and that this is coming from someone in the Jewish community as they study their scriptures with us. I think it's it's all the more to look at. We'll be right back. So let's dive into Psalms 82, and honestly, I can't say I have ever heard anyone preach off of this passage, and uh, if you look in the, uh, if you have this in your Bible, and your Bible has any kind of like commentary notes in the bottom, you're going to see commentators start to squirm over this passage. They are afraid to just read it plainly. And so they want to take it metaphorically. They want to insert a word that isn't even in here, and that's the word judges. And they want to take out the word Elohim, gods, and they want to insert the word judges because they just don't like the the import. And as you get into this passage, you're going to see why I'm why I'm setting it up like this. They don't like having to acknowledge that there's other Elohim. Because we've worked so hard to be monotheistic, and and maybe what we just need is a better understanding of what it means to be monotheistic. But you know, it's the Bible itself that we are trying to unpack. You know, we're not we're not trying to take outside influences and bring them into our Bible. We're just wanting to read the Bible as it is and not be helped as we read our Bible, because that's where I think we've gotten ourselves in trouble so many times as students of the Bible throughout the centuries, is someone comes up with a proper, understand quotes, a doctrine. There you go. 
you know, a doctor, even better if it's systematic, because then it can be all A is to B is to B is to C. And it's like, oh, look how nice and neat we've got this. And then you run over and you bump into a scripture and it won't fit. And so then it's all the contortions and, oh, well, this obviously can't mean this. It has to be talking about. And I, I just hate that. It's always made me so uncomfortable when we come to that because we're, you know, we're, you're not, I just think we're not to bend the scriptures. You just let them frustrate you. You let them humble you. You let them bewilder you. And you just keep coming before the Lord and you keep reading and you saturate yourself. And then you start to see things come together sometimes. If you don't go doctoring the text and doctoring the meanings, just to try to make it all fit nice and neat. It's like, you know, it's like a crossword, uh, what do you call this? Jigsaw puzzle and you can't make this piece fit. So you take scissors and, you know, you just start kind of like trimming the square edge round. But later you'll find you just weren't doing it right. There's an answer there. All right. So I just want to read this as it is. Psalms 82. God takes his stand in the divine assembly in the midst of the gods he renders judgment. I mean, that's just how it opens. And this ties into a whole big kind of study that Michael Heiser became famous for, studying the divine counsel and how many times in the Old Testament Yahweh, the creator God, is seen as surrounded by multitudes of other supernatural, super spiritual beings that he has created and who are subordinate to him. He calls them sons, clearly. They have ranks. Some of them are called archangels, boss man angels, and others are not called that. Some of them are freaky looking to us, four faces, and they're very bizarre. They are different from us, but they are the also creatures of God, and they are in relationship to Him, and they're also clearly free will beings. And they are a huge part of the Bible story, and you can just say, I don't believe in those, so that's fine, but the Bible believes in them. And angels are a believed part of Scripture. There's doctrine of angelology, and the Bible says a lot about these creatures. It doesn't say enough to suit us, but it does say a lot. And here it starts. There is a court. There is a council. There is the assembly of all Elohim. And Yahweh is standing as a judge in the midst of this council, this grand assembly of divine beings. In the midst of the Elohim, he renders judgment. And now he renders his judgment. He is given his, he is giving his verdict about something. And let's hear what it is. He says, how long will you, who's you? It's some of the Elohim, whoever's in the, whoever's in the accused box. How long will you judge dishonestly? How long will you show favor to the wicked. You know, you not only, you know, court is a time when the the weak and the innocent and the one who's been attacked, it's the one place they go and they have to have a person who has authority who can stand and who can say 
which is evil and which is good. You know, it's your one place in a society that an innocent person has to run to in hopes that someone will balance the scales. And Yahweh turns to the Elohim and says, it's you. How long will you judge dishonestly? You know, not only do you not give a proper verdict, you actually always choose the wicked person and you let them win. Now, this word judge, we got to broaden our understanding of that because we have a whole book of the Bible called the book of Judges. And if you read that book, you'll see that not one of those people sits in a courtroom like a judge. So we have a modern idea of judge that we need to be careful we don't we don't read that back into completely this passage or the idea of judge. You know, the book of Judges, you basically understand that a judge is a person who becomes bigger than others, and they have influence, and they use their influence to lead. And the book of Judges is there to show people who have, who have risen up to have an authority over others, and they lead with a transcendent moral or ethical compass. You know, they've got a higher standard. And that standard, as we understand it, is the will of God, the will of Yahweh. The way Yahweh's heart is, is the way a judge is supposed to influence and lead and uh, radiate their influence over other people. Um, in the midst of the gods, he renders this judgment. Let me read you his commentary. He says, now, if you look in your, uh, like, I've got the New King James Version, and although it mine has no commentary, in the bottom, still, even the translator can't leave it alone. He says, Elohim, that is the judges. Well, it doesn't say judges. There's nothing in there about human judges. And so Alter, dealing with even other Hebrew scholars, he says, the efforts of traditional commentators to understand Elohim here as judges are unconvincing. God speaks out in the assembly of lesser gods, and he rebukes them for doing a wretched job in the administration of justice on earth. Let me, let me keep reading. I'm going to read his footnote on uh, the dishonest judging that they're doing. The answer here is that the gods, administrators of the old polytheistic order, they impose a crooked scheme of justice on humanity, showing favoritism to the wicked and ignoring the pleas of the helpless. So he clearly sees this as a courtroom drama about the Elohim. And Yahweh is now judging the Elohim for the way they are influencing the nations of the earth. And then there's that word Selah. That just means sit and ponder this. Stay tuned. Let's go to verse 3. This was the initial, it appears to be, the initial set of orders that Yahweh gave the Elohim when they were installed 
as influencers and leaders and you know judges in the Old Testament sense of of being a judge. This was what he had said. Verse 3. Do justice to the poor and the orphan. Vindicate the lowly and the wretched. Free the poor and the needy from the hand of the wicked. Save them. Okay? So this psalm has opened with the pronoun you. Yahweh is facing the other Elohim that he has created who are subordinate to him, who, if we can tie this, this is again one of those decentralized stories, which are often some of the biggest ones in the Bible. So at some point, these Elohim have been placed in authority over humans, and they have not led the nations that they influence toward righteousness, but they have actually actively led them toward darkness. We're talking about the problem of evil that we talked about earlier. Okay, now we look at verse 5. He switches pronouns. He says, they. So it went from you, and now he looks at they, and I believe he's talking about humans. He says, they do not know. And do not grasp. In darkness, they walk about. So you've done a pitiful job at leading the human race in all of its people groups, all of its tribes, all of its nations, all of its traditions and cultures. You have influenced them because I gave you authority to influence them. And you have influenced them toward wickedness. And after all these years, they do not know still they do not grasp the will of God still. In darkness, they're walking about. The whole world, and that's New Testament too, the world lies in darkness. There's still darkness. And he is accusing the Elohim of actively promoting this darkness by favoring Ra, by favoring the wickedness, by favoring the evil. The thing that is the human problem already is our fascination with the dark side. You know how much more interesting if you're an actor and they give you a bad guy or, or an evil villainous to play. It's like, oh, good, I like playing this one. You know, why are we more intrigued with the evil than the good? Why is the good boring? Same thing. So now he, he lays it at the feet of the Elohim, and now he switches perspectives one more time. From you to them, look for six, to me. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this psalm is that God himself is speaking. Most times in scripture, it is a psalm about the Lord. You know, oh, praise the Lord, the Lord is like this. It's all third person. But in this case, Yahweh himself grabs the mic. He takes center stage, and this, this whole psalm is Yahweh himself speaking. And this is what he said. As for me, I had thought you were Elohim and the sons of the Most High were you all. You know, I, I, you have the privilege of being in the presence of Yahweh. I assumed I could trust you. And so, you know, for me, this, it builds a pretty clear understanding, if I'm trying to design a cosmology, that 
you know, in the the first run, Adam is the image of God. The world is placed in his hands and Eve's hands. They rebel. World gets the deluge. And now we come back together. Humans reunite. They rebel against God a second time. And at this point, God's even though commitment to the planet calls for another practice. He distances himself from the human race, divides the world, Deuteronomy 32, world of humans into tribes, appoints them according to the sons of Elohim to angelic patrons whose job it is to influence. I don't know, honestly, I wish the Bible would say this a little bit clearer, but I'm just going to be looking in every angel story that I can find, I'm just going to try to figure it out. You know, like, it's sort of like, you know how sunflowers, they just sort of follow the influence of the sun and they bend. And I think there's one understanding of human societies that we reflect the spiritual forces that we cannot see, just like the radiation of the sun, pulls. You know, you can be in different parts of a forest and every tree is bent the same direction. And it didn't set out from a seed to bend that way. It bent that way because of the influence of the sun. And there is an influence from the spirit world and the spirit world itself is divided and there is wickedness in high places. And that wickedness causes this spiritual influence over human societies And the pillars of our society, our educational institution, our government, our military, nowadays our our media, these things are never neutral. They always seem to have a dark bent. If you've never read the book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield talks about just try to create something beautiful. And he's not talking about this like as a Christian with the Bible as your guide. He's talking as a Hollywood scriptwriter saying, if anybody in the world tries to create a beautiful thing, you will feel spiritual resistance. It will come from inside of you and outside of you. There are forces you must persevere through if you want to do anything that's on God's side. I think it's really a beautiful book to read about spiritual resistance and spiritual warfare. Well, you know, this passage that we're reading, Psalms 82, you know, the battle between the rebel Elohim who are over the nations of the world. So let's just do the math. It says in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations. In Deuteronomy 32, it says the nations are divided according to the number of the sons of God or the angels of God. So you got these princes And then Jesus trains 70 preachers, and he trains them at the end of his ministry. He comes back from the dead. The first words he says are not, hey, good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. You get to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. He doesn't mention anything about that. It's not that it isn't true, but it isn't what excited him, and it wasn't the point. The point was, he said, I am now Lord of heaven and earth, and he sends the 70 that he's trained, go to all the nations of the earth now. So we we go as the representatives of the kingdom of God, and we go into all the nations, and we plant the flag that says the 
Elohim human Jesus, the God-man Jesus, is now Lord who holds together heaven and earth. He is Lord of heaven because he is the son of the great Elohim, crowned king. And he is Lord of earth because he is a son of Adam, crowned king. And he has purchased the earth by his blood. And he is now the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. And go back to this psalm and look at verse 8. You go from God taking the throne and he points his finger at the Elohim and he says, this is what you've done. And then he says, the humans, verse 5, the humans do not, they're still in darkness. And in verse 6, he said, as for me, I thought I could trust you. And in verse 8, you hear this chorus. And I think it's a chorus of of heaven and earth crying out. And it says, arise, O God, judge the earth. You know, like uh, that same word judge that he said they didn't do properly influence, lead in accordance with a high, transcendent, moral standard, the will of God. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you hold in estate all the nations. In other words, you hold the title to all the nations. You have the right of creation over all the nations. You know, the actually, I'll just read you again, Alter's commentary on it. Arise, O God. The psalm concludes with a speaker who exhorts the one authentic divine being, the God, to impose upon earth the reign of true justice to which he alone is committed. I love that. You know, he he turned it over to humans. We weren't committed to it. He turned it over to the Elohim. They're not committed to it. They've actually become committed to wickedness, just like the humans are committed to wickedness. But Yahweh is committed to a reign of righteousness and true justice. I'll read you one last quote from Alter. In the ancient world, the multiplicity of nations is associated with a multiplicity of gods. Each nation has a patron god. You can see, for example, Jephthah's words to the Amorite king, about Yahweh and the Amorite deity Chemosh in Judges 11.24, as well as a variety of gods and goddesses that preside over the various realms of nature. But now that order has proven to be judicially and morally bankrupt. It is the God of Israel alone who holds in estate all the nations of the earth. I just think this ties together, whole kingdom of God concept, why Jesus, the reinstatement of the dream of God for the earth, the take and what the whole spiritual war of the church is all about is go to the nations of the world and slam in the ground the flag of God's kingdom and declare to the people of that nation and to the spirits over that nation, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. Now, what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to get a reaction, and you may very well lose your life. And then Jesus said that. He said, go to all the nations. They're going to hate it. (laughs) They're going to hate you doing this. Do it anyway. Be faithful. And when they drag you before the kings, why would a little evangelist from a little unknown religion, you know, 
Why would he end up in front of the king? Well, it's because this is about authority over the nations. This is about power. This is about who gets to be the image of God. And so Paul can say Jesus is the express image of God. And so Jesus sends us as his images, and he breathes his breath on his people, and he sends us out to the nations. And he says, go to all the nations and declare to them, I am Lord. And they may very well take your life from you, but you will end up in front of power people. And don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Why? Spirit needs to speak to spirit. It's not just that yet. The humans need to go tell the other humans. That's a beautiful part of this, but there is a transition and a transfer of spiritual authority. And as the church goes nation by nation, and as humans made in the image of God, made from the dirt of this planet, we are this planet as a being walking around. And as we walk around and we declare on behalf of our planet that this is our king. We humans are loyal to King Jesus. He declares authority over all the demon powers. We can cast out demons. We can break down spiritual darkness. We may end up paying for this with our lives, but as we prove loyal to God one by one, the promise, it's why the resurrection is such an important promise, not just that you'll be uh, spiritually conscious after you die. That is not the end of the promise. The end of the promise is you live again. When God has found his loyal ones, those people get not just a little micro life that humans have now, where you're alive just like a piece of grass that comes up and we have a few years and then we're gone. But if in those years you stand loyal to Yahweh, then you find yourself being given a physical life that is eternal. It never stops And we are not a problem to Yahweh with our free will, even though we live forever. So it's a beautiful story. It's one big, um, it's one big concept. And it begins at the first verse of the Bible, and it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And Revelation is just a mirror of Genesis 1 through 12. So anyway, this is exciting to me. I think it answers a lot of questions. I can understand it stirring up a lot of counter questions, and I think we need to have some great open dialogue about this. But this is where I'm going to land it here, and I hope you've enjoyed coming to this point with the Thread Podcast. Let's just keep digging into the Word of God and ask God to reveal these things to us so that we can serve Him better in our generation. We have a mission, not just a mission to study the Bible and go to church, but we have a mission in the earth. So expect God to use you.